Hi, I'm Raphael, and welcome to Ask Me Anything for today, the 23rd of October, 2020. A couple of public service announcements to begin. Firstly is that uh, this is available as a podcast. So if you're watching on video, uh, you can continue to do so. But if you prefer to listen, you can head over to your favorite podcast app, whether that's uh, the Apple Podcast app or Google or Spotify or any of the others, and you'll find us there. Just type in Ask Me Anything. Uh, and also that I have another podcast with my friend and colleague, Chloe Bunter, called Pilates Elephants. So if you're interested in Pilates, uh, we unpack the myths and misconceptions, the elephants in the room in the Pilates industry. And that is uh, weekly, and that is also on uh, all major podcast platforms. Pilates elephants. And final PSA for today, uh, I'm very excited that we have now this week launched our new clinical diploma. So it's a diploma of clinical Pilates. It is 100% online. It's an internationally recognized Australian government accredited course. And uh, it's for you if you're a Pilates instructor with at least a couple of years experience teaching uh, and either mat or reformer or both, and you really want to take your knowledge of anatomy, biomechanics, uh, and the whole clinical side of things um, to a deeper level. It's a full year course, and you'll find uh, all the details uh, on our website, which is breathe, B-R-E-A-T-H-E dot E-D-U dot A-U. So that is uh, all the PSAs for today. Let's get into the questions. First one comes from Cassie and Cassie says, Hi Raphael, I have a question about Pilates as an exercise modality for Parkinson's disease. And more specifically, if you know of examples of stage four Parkinson's disease using Pilates exercises. Thanks, Cassie. Uh, well, Cassie, I uh, did some digging and I found a some good news, basically. Uh, so I found three systematic reviews, and the first one was from 2018, and it was uh, it examined exercise um, for Parkinson's disease, and they had they had two conditions: one where they used an external cue, another one where they gave no specific cue and or an internal cue, and the final one where there was no exercise. Uh, and what they measured, the outcomes in this systematic review, where they looked at studies that measured um, walking speed, um, average, so average walking speed, uh, maximum walking speed, sit-to-stand time, uh, step length. And what they found was that basically the external cue uh, condition was superior to both the non-exercise condition and also to exercise without specific cues or with internal cues. So uh, what that suggests is you should work on um, with your Parkinson's disease patient or client is uh, practice walking, practice sit to stand um, and give them external cues like, you know, step on that dot on the floor or walk towards the wall or those kinds of things, um, you know, lift your shoes higher as you step. So those kinds of things, cues that focus on a result of the movement that bring their attention to a point outside their body. Um, that'll be more effective. The second systematic review I found, uh, 
that looked they looked at home based exercise compared to exercise done under supervision, and what they found was they were equally effective for Parkinson's disease, uh, and they were looking at balance um, parameters. So um, you know, walking, stationary standing, different. Um, parameters around balance uh, and so home-based exercise can be just as effective uh, and the third review I found was on mind-body exercises now this wasn't actually didn't include any studies on Pilates it uh, was focused on yoga and Tai Chi and Qigong um, but my gut is we could probably smoosh Pilates in um, there quite comfortably uh, and so what they found was that mind-body exercise does improve, and this was in the, uh, the short term, like immediately after um, the exercise session, does improve many parameters of Parkinson's disease. Um, so, you know, they looked at balance, they looked at walking speed, they looked at sit-to-stand, um, you know, things like that. So uh, what I would suggest, you know, how do we interpret all of that? Well, I would say that uh, Pilates is really probably going to be beneficial for almost certainly going to be beneficial for your Parkinson's uh, uh, person um, and that you should probably include two components within the workout. One should be probably a specific, uh, you know, skill practice of the thing, the activities that they need to improve. So walking, sit to stand, balancing activities, but not, I'm not talking about standing on one leg on a BOSU. I mean, like, just the sorts of balancing activities that they need to do in their daily life, like standing still on two feet on a flat surface for a few minutes while they wash the dishes or whatever. So walking upstairs, walking downstairs, those kinds of things. Practice those using external cues. So focus on cues that relate to the environment, giving them giving them cues about where to put their shoes, you know, place the sole of your shoe on the second step. Walk towards the wall lift the the crease of your pants leg higher as you walk you know give them cues that bring their focus of attention outside their body the second part of the work or the second component of the workout should i think just be a general pilates workout because um, of that study that now that review that found mind body exercise is beneficial so just do general whole body you know pilates work Again, I would focus on external cueing during that, so cueing them to bring their attention to a point outside their body, but just and just work work through the Pilates repertoire, you know, within their capability, whatever their level of function and fitness and flexibility is. You know, give them appropriately modified things that are attainable for them. Um, so yeah, I hope I hope you find that helpful and uh, good luck. Tom Fisher says. Uh, he has a question about supplements. He says, hi, Raf. Here's a question you may be able to answer. It's about supplements for the body. What I want to know is, if you're taking supplements and your body naturally produces what you're boosting, e.g. creatine or collagen or zinc, does the body stop producing the regular amounts as it responds to what's being provided? Um, the body is smart and would learn to be lazy when allowed. <laughs> Any research to back this? Um, well, Tom, I can't directly answer your question. Um because I don't have a deep enough knowledge of uh, the um, nutrition science, but um, I, I can partially answer your question because I know how to look things up. So um, I did a I did a, a bit of research into create both creatine and collagen supplementation. I didn't get to zinc, but uh, 
for creatine and collagen, what uh, I found is um, there's a very there's a very comprehensive literature on creatine supplementation. Um, it goes back about a quarter of a decade, and there's a pretty high quality um, literature in there. Uh, and what we've found, what is that um, if you take about three to five grams of creatine per day, uh, it significantly ha- enhances uh, your ability to recover from high intensity exercise. It enhances your uh what's called power endurance. So basically, if you do a maximal kind of sprint on a cycle for 30 seconds and then have a two-minute break and then go again, um, the second time and the third time and the fourth time you go, generally you'll be less and less and less uh, uh, powerful, you know, less speed on the pedals. Um, uh, If you've been taking creatine supplementation for four weeks before you do the test, you're going to be you're going to, your endurance will be retained much better. So your power endurance will be much better. Your second, third, and fourth trials, you'll be much closer to the, your, you know, the the amount of power that you output on trial number one. Uh, and it probably enhances your ability to recover from high intensity resistance training and thus to uh, train harder and get more benefits. So it's 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 pretty uncontroversial, I think, to say that uh, creatine supplementation will enhance probably uh, probably maximal strength training and certainly power training um, for athletes. And that's at about three to five grams per day, which you think about like a teaspoon is about six grams. So, you know, kind of a non-heaped teaspoon um, of uh, creatine monohydrate. And uh, it is a legal supplement in just about every uh professional and amateur athletics and sporting association. So if you're a powerlifter or mixed martial artist or whatever, it's generally um, within your association. It's most likely legal, although check that with your association. So that's creatine. Now, creatine is something that's naturally produced in your muscle cells. um, But uh, what we do when we take supplement is we basically increase the concentration. So you end up having more in your muscle cell um, as a result of supplementation. It takes a, a, at least a few weeks, though, to, to build up. You can take a much bigger dose. So you can take like 20 grams a day for one week and then get the same effect. Um, but then the maintenance dose is about three to five grams a day, according to most studies. So that's creatine. If, you're, if, you're, if, if it's your goal to increase uh, maximum strength or particularly power, which is basically strength applied quickly, um, then uh, I would say creatine supplementation is pretty much a no-brainer. Um, the only so it's been you know like I said it's got a 25-year history in the research so uh, and no you know, adverse side effects have been uh, discovered. Um, there is you know some anecdotal evidence that people experience muscle cramping and things and I experience that myself uh, from uh, you know whenever I'm on creatine I. I get some muscle cramps uh it's more of a kind of like annoyance rather than you know anything else um and i pretty much consider it a small price to pay for the increased uh performance and recovery um that comes from creatine so yeah hope that helps Uh, now as to collagen this was an interesting one so collagen is a protein um and it is the protein that makes up the vast majority of your uh non-muscle 
uh, non-fat weight. So, you know, all of your ligaments and tendons and fascia, connective tissue are made uh, predominantly of collagen. And even within your muscle tissue, um, there is quite a bit of collagen that is, uh, you know, that kind of this forms the structural elements of the muscle, you know, the bits that sort of like form the, the skeleton, as it were, of, of the scaffolding of the muscle. Um, and so you use collagen uh, in your skin, you know, like right throughout your body. And uh, so so that, that's, that's the reason for the interest, I think, in collagen recently. Um, um, but there's, here's the thing. Uh, proteins can't pass, whole proteins can't pass through the walls of your digestive tract. So proteins are made up, uh, a molecule, proteins are molecules that are made up of long chains of smaller molecules called amino acids. And uh, in our gut, whenever, when you ingest, when you, know, when you eat or drink protein, you break it down inside your gut into its component amino acids, and the amino acids pass then through the wall of your gut into your bloodstream. And the reason we do that is because uh, to avoid activating our immune system. So basically our immune system uh, recognizes invaders, you know, viruses or bacteria, uh, be, uh, by their, the proteins that are um, stuck in the, the cell walls of these you know, viruses and bacteria. Uh, and so proteins, like when you have antibodies, you know, you say you have an antibody to some you know, virus or something, well, an antibody is simply a protein that has a complementary shape to the virus protein. Um, and so basically if you, uh, if, 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 if we allowed proteins to pass through our gut wall into our bloodstream, we would generate a violent immune response against those proteins uh, because they would be perceived by your immune system as invaders and you would get a massive immune response. So we don't allow whole proteins to pass through our gut wall. We only allow uh, their, we break them down into their components, their amino acids, and the, each amino acid then passes through the gut wall. And then once they're inside our body, in our liver generally, or in our cells, whatever, we reassemble those amino acids into whatever protein we need, and you know, largely collagen. Um, now, so from a theoretical standpoint, you know, with my understanding of uh, biochemistry, which admittedly is, is not terribly profound, um, it didn't make sense then that collagen supplementation would be any different to supplementing with any other protein, because if you ingest it as collagen, you want, the process of digestion actually makes it into not collagen. You break it down into its component amino acids. So all you get in your blood is a bunch of amino acids, regardless of whether you you ate collagen or, uh, you know, um, whey protein, which is the common protein from uh, egg whites, um, you know, whatever protein you, you eat, it ends up just as amino acids. So, um, you know, to me, that didn't seem terribly plausible, that, pro that collagen supplementation would have any benefit on anything relative to just eating the same amount of a different protein because all you're going to get is a bunch of amino acids in your blood. But I was wrong. 
So uh, the research on collagen is is way less. Uh, it's way more recent and it's it's much smaller body of research than the research on creatine. So I would say the research on collagen is probably nascent. You know, it's it's just at the beginning and uh, it's it's probably too small a body of research to draw any strong conclusions. Um, but uh, there is some promising research. Uh, so basically all of the trials that I've found, and I found a couple of systematic reviews and meta-analyses, and uh, all of them seem to find either no benefit or a benefit um, for uh, both pain, uh, like joint pain, um, osteoarthritis, uh, and uh, skin health. Um, and so none of them have found that it makes it worse. Uh, and all, you know, all of them find either you know no benefit or some benefit, and the majority of them find some benefit. So uh, I would say it's early days. There's not been enough studies to really you know call it a settled matter yet. But the early indications are probably that collagen supplementation has some benefits beyond just eating enough protein. Uh, and the most of these studies had a dose between five and fifteen grams per day. Um, the only thing I would say as a word of caution is because it's early days and there's not a long, a lot of long-term literature in this, or there's not any long-term literature in this field that I found, um, side effects are unknown. And so, you know, potential side effects might be, for example, like in um, issues with the kidneys. Um, and I don't know if that's a thing or not, but I'm just saying that uh, with with a relatively emerging field of research, those are the things that are yet to be discovered. So, uh, yeah, so collagen supplementation, yeah, does seem to probably be, you know, something worth considering. Uh, okay, now, of course, you shouldn't take nutritional advice from me because I'm not a nutritionist, and uh, I mean that genuinely. Um, so if you're considering taking collagen, um, and I don't know what your reasons are, uh, if if such is the case, go see a dietitian. Dietitians are awesome. And uh, I see one, you know, irregularly when I have a question about my um, you know, diet and performance and whatever. Um, and it's always well worth the, the time and, and money I spend. All right. I hope that helps. Um, Carly has a question. Uh, all right, so this is kind of a long one, so I'm just going to summarize it. Basically, uh, Carly says, all right, I'm just going to read this paragraph out. I'm struggling with reason. If there is no bad or good posture or no particular right or wrong way to do things, then why teach any particular way to do a movement in Pilates? Um for example, when lying on your side and maintaining that slight gap underneath the waist while carrying out the rest of the side-lying movements, why is that the way to do it? And I don't want to just think that's because the way Joseph did it or because a lot of what is taught is adapted from those moves anyway. Is there not a better way to do a movement even when there's not particularly a wrong way? And why is that? <laughs> um, because you work harder and get more out of the movement? I listened to the Good and Bad Muscles uh, podcast. That was one of our Pilates Elephants podcasts. Um, and I understand that just working and moving all muscles is beneficial. All right. So what a great question, Carly. Um, so essentially, this is 
what you're describing is what I think of as a sense of movement nihilism. You know, it's like, well, if there are no rules, nothing matters. You know, what the hell are we doing? Why tell anyone to do anything any particular way if everything just works the same? Um, and the answer is that, well, it depends on what your goal is for what your participants' goal is for doing the exercise. Um, so I'll give you a couple of different scenarios. So if, and and people's goals, you know, people might have more than one goal and their goals may change. So the reasons that bring people to exercise initially may change over time and they may be different reasons that keep them coming over time. So if your goal is to... Uh, burn as many calories as possible because you want to lose weight or tone up. Well, you should, uh, that's, you know, largely to do with programming and programming whole body movements are going to burn more calories compared to programming isolated movements. Um, But even within a relatively isolated movement, like a side-lying exercise where you're basically just moving your leg, If you lift your waist up off the mat, so you make a little mouse house for a mouse to run under your waist there, um, well, that is working more muscle. You know, you're working the waist muscles now and probably the lower hip muscles a bit more as well, so you're burning more calories. So that's a benefit. Um, Whereas if your goal is not necessarily to lose weight and tone up, but to just like feel more healthy, well, is there any particular benefit to lifting your waist up? I would say probably not. Doesn't really matter. Um, if your goal is, you know, or if the benefit that people are seeking is to do with um, like those, men- basically the mental benefits of Pilates. So basically feeling calm at one with your body, happy, you know, getting out of your head, essentially getting into a flow state. Well, the way to achieve a flow state is to engage in an activity that requires, that is a high challenge, you know, has a high level of challenge and at which you have a high level of skill, right? So when, think about when you're completely absorbed in, in movement. It's when you're doing something that's relatively challenging and you're relatively good at it, like compared to how challenging it is, you, you know, you're just good enough, but it's not easy and you're not so good that it's easy for you. So, you know, that can be the level of challenge has to be obviously relative to the person's level of skill. So if you've got somebody for whom, you know, just lying on the side and moving the leg is a challenge. Well, they probably don't need to think about lifting up their waist because if you ask them to do that, it might bring the level of challenge beyond their level of skill and they may actually come out of flow because they'll be trying to think about too many things all at the same time. So that might be a reason to not cue, you know, to lift up your waist in that sideline movement. Or if you have a more skilled person, you know, somebody who's done it more and is more experienced, well, it might be, if you're just getting them to wave their leg around, it might be too easy for them and they can do that whilst thinking about what they're going to cook for dinner tonight. So you might need to give them additional challenge, e.g. lift up your waist, 
so that they have to bring their brain to bear on the on the task and that will help them get into that flow state so uh yeah those are those are the those are the reasons really um that i can think of off the top of my head why you would give someone a particular uh you know instruction um you know is there a better or worse way to do it nah not really you know it all depends on what you're trying to achieve and i think you know, the vast majority of these benefits will accrue to people kind of just from showing up and, and, and moving, right? And so all of the additional difference that we make is is a relatively small amount of difference, I think. I think the biggest difference that we make as exercise professionals is helping people get motivated and empowered to show up and do the work. Right, and it's just by showing up and doing the work that you get the majority of the benefit, and I think that's the case in most areas. In when it comes to health and fitness, right? So just say with diet, right? You know, you could think about, you know, meal timing and macronutrient density, and you know, protein timing and fasted cardio and ketoacidosis and all that kind of stuff. But really, for most people, if they just want to lose a little bit of weight and tone up a little bit. Probably just being aware of, you know, eating a balanced diet and not eating to being over full is going to give them 80% of their benefit, right? And then it's only people who are, you know, working towards a, a figure athlete show or a bodybuilding show or a, a weight class athlete or somebody who wants to be 5% body fat, well, that's when you have to get up at midnight and eat your 30 grams of protein and, you know, have steamed chicken and broccoli for dinner every seven nights a week and all of that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, same in movement that, you know, the vast majority of the benefit for most people, they just want to feel better, look better you know, be stronger, be happier, you know, more calm, more centered. Like the vast majority of that benefit accrues from just showing up and moving, right? And having fun. So your job, I think the biggest difference you can make as a movement teacher is to make it fun, is to empower your clients, you know, to have, to, to build their confidence. And the way you build confidence is you set the bar low at the start, you know, give them early wins, set the bar low for success. So don't tell them to lift up their waist. Just say, hey, lift up your leg, swing it around. You're doing awesome. Look at the way you're swinging your leg around. That's exactly what I wanted you to do. High five. You're awesome. And that way they enjoy themselves and they feel uh, they're doing a good job and uh, they they feel more motivated um, probably to come back next time. And then next time you say, hey, look, you know what? You're doing so good. I rarely see people pick this up as quickly as you. Are you sure this is your second time only? Um, You know what? I think we could we could give you a little bit more challenge this time because I think it's going to get a bit too easy for you quickly otherwise. So why don't we think about lifting your waist up a little and making a little mouse house under there um, this afternoon so that we can just keep you progressing. So that's the way I would approach it. Hope that helps. And don't, don't, don't worry. You don't have to become a movement nihilist. There is a reason for us, for our existence. All right. Louise uh, says, um, Hey, Raph. Um, like yourself, I have a large respect for evidence-based research. However, I believe there are some things that cannot be explained and adequately determined through the scope and limitations of scientific research, especially when the subject matter is as complex as the human body and mind. 
I would love to hear your perspective on the limitations of scientific research. Uh, many thanks, Louise. Hey, Louise. Awesome question. Um, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, there are many, many things <laughs> that currently cannot be explained by uh, science. Um, uh, low back pain is one of them. Um, you know, human motivation <laughs> is another one. Behavior change is another one. So there are just huge gaping, you know, holes in our understanding of how the world works, um, particularly around the human body and mind. Uh, now, I don't think those are necessary, necessarily inherent limitations in science. I think they're more limitations in our current understanding. And I can imagine some future time, maybe a hundred years from now, when you know some of those things are not mysterious to us anymore. When we've you know we've we've peeled back the onion and, and we we understand it. Uh, if we think about a hundred years ago, some of the things that we didn't understand, you know, like <laughs> infectious disease, um, or maybe not a hundred, maybe one hundred and fifty years ago for infectious disease pre you know Louis Pasteur. Um, you know, the germ theory of illness is only, you know, from the from the 19th century. Uh, you know, so about 200 years ago, we were bleeding people and leeching them. Um, so, you know, definitely our understanding uh, is incomplete. Uh, and I, th I think that's a temporary state of affairs. And we just, you know, got to keep pushing the peanut forwards. And many of these things won't be resolved in our lifetimes. Uh, but you know, we, we move forwards and you know, do the best we can with what we've got. I think, you know, where, where the, I think the, the philosophical or, or where, where I, I think we, we do need to be cautious is in going from an acknowledgement that science has a very incomplete understanding of these things, which is 100% true. Science does have a very incomplete understanding of many areas. Um, but leaping from that to, to then saying, uh, well, therefore, anecdote, intuition, and personal experience are a good guide. And that's, that's a logical fallacy. So now that, that's not what you were proposing in your question, and I, I don't know if this applies to you or not. Louise, so um, this is sort of more of a general point, um, but you know, just basically saying that okay, science doesn't know the answer to this question at this time doesn't imply that somebody's intuition, theory, or personal experience or anecdote does have the answer. You know, those two things are not logically connected. One doesn't follow from the other. So I think you know, in those situations where we say, for instance, low back pain or, you know, how do you help someone change their behavior, like give up smoking or start exercising or start eating better or whatever, you know, the answer to that is, well, we've got, you know, science knows some things that help a bit in these areas, um, you know, but we, we probably have only solved 20% of the problem at this stage. Um, and I think, you know what we what what is you know the right response there for us is to say well we we've probably only solved twenty percent of the problem and 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 we should just acknowledge that and say okay well that's the probably the best we can do right now right is is to give you help you get twenty percent better or help twenty percent of the people get better um, rather than 
you know, fall into the trap of thinking like, oh, well, science doesn't understand it, you know, therefore we should just apply non-science. Um, so I think, uh, you know, science knows uh, in regard to, for instance, low back pain, science, science knows some things that help and it knows some things that don't help, but those are just things around the edges. You know, the vast majority of things we actually don't know how to solve for. So I would say, you know, our, our best way to proceed forth is to just work within what science has illuminated, you know, do the things that we know work, avoid the things that we know that don't work, and uh, then just uh, f- fill in the gaps. <laughs> so, um, but, but be, but be, I guess, um, you know, remain humble enough to realize that basically we're just making it up <laughs> um, and that, uh, you know, just because uh, we believe something to be the case doesn't mean it is the case unless it's been shown repeatedly by um, well-conducted studies. So anyway, I hope that helps. I'm not sure if it does, but that's my best answer. And thanks for your question, Louise. Uh, so Belinda says, um, hey, Raf, hope you're well. Have you done any podcast on sciatic nerve issues by chance or what exercises help? I think I've developed a rather painful issue with sciatic pain from my left glute all the way down my leg. It's likely coming from my lower back, even though I have no pain in that area. Um, I'm still exercising, lots of loading like squats and lunges. Not sure if that's a good thing, but it seems to feel worse afterwards. Anyway, I just thought I would check as I fear getting stuck down the physio rabbit hole of rehab. Well, uh, Belinda, I am going to join your question with Candace's question, which is very similar. Um, so Candace says, hi Raf, I'm hoping you'll be able to get, maybe able to give me some guidance on Pilates with a psoas injury I've been carrying for about three weeks now. I've had three myotherapy treatments with three different practitioners and at my most recent treatment, which has been the most effective, the therapist suggested I avoid hip flexor stretches and anything that puts the legs beyond 90 degrees. Up until this most recent treatment, I've been unable to bend past my knees and get up from a seated position without getting stuck halfway. I'm trying to draw on our training, but honestly feeling a little lost as to what I need to be doing. Would this suggest my hip flexors are being are taking over and that I should be working to strengthen the psoas? I would normally do reformer Pilates four to five times per week, but I'm struggling with one to two at the moment without a flare-up. Any pointers in the right direction would be greatly appreciated. Um, now, I did have a little bit of a further uh, conversation with Candice over uh, DM, um, and uh, it this uh, pain came on when she was uh, actually came on on a Monday morning, um, and when she when she woke up, and uh, then she thought back and thought, okay, what might have caused this? And she thought, okay, well, on Saturday, I loaded uh, three big um, folding tables in and out of a ute and lugged them around, and so it might have been that. Um, and she said she has. Uh, pain in her low back. Um, what does she say? P- 
pain in her low back down to her radiating down to her hip and her glute and down the back of the leg, I believe. But no numbness, no change in bladder or bowel function. So we've ruled out red flags. So, um, and the pain for Candace also goes around to the front of the hip. So quite similar symptoms um, that uh, Belinda was describing. So... Um, Belinda, I think basically everything I'm about to say to Candice also uh, I would say to you. So the first thing is uh, well, if somebody has a, a new onset pain um, is to rule out red flags. So, um, you know, was there a traumatic onset? In this case, no, there wasn't because it happened when you woke up. Um, you know, so that rules out a fracture or something like that. Um, and is there any chance of quarter equina syndrome, so any change to bladder or bowel function, any, you know, numbness in the seat, you know, in your butt, basically, um, you know, loss of muscle control in the leg, like your foot goes floppy or, you know, you can't wiggle your toes properly, um, or muscle wasting. Um, so presuming that we don't have any of those things, so that's not the same as pain in the leg. So if we've just lo totally lost sensation in the leg or we can't move the foot properly or whatever, that's a cause for concern and that's a red flag for quarter equina syndrome and you should go to the emergency room. Um, but without, in the absence of those symptoms, um, it is uh, you know, very likely garden variety sciatica, um, you know, which is just irritation of the sciatic nerve that uh, travels down the leg into the foot. Um, and that irritation can occur in a number of places. It can occur inside the spinal canal, if there's a disc bulge or some other kind of stenosis, spondylolisthesis, some other kind of irritation in there, or just inflammation. It can occur at the nerve root, where the nerve exits the spinal canal. It can occur, you know, outside of the spinal cord um, as the nerve travels through the pelvis or through the you know, back of the leg or whatever. So there are a number of places that the nerve could get irritated. Um, now, Candice, from what you've said, it doesn't sound to me like a traumatic, you know, like a, even a too much too soon injury. Because, you know, because when you told me about the, you know, lugging the tables out of the, the ute, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, maybe that could be some kind of a disc, you know, irritation or something like that. But then, you know, the, but the pain didn't start till 36 hours later. So that kind of doesn't totally make sense to me. Although, you know, it's plausible, conceivable, should I say. Um, however, like when you told me that you do Pilates four to five times a week, I think, all right, so if you're used to doing reformer Pilates four to five times a week, I think lugging three folding tables out of a ute should not, is doesn't sound like to me something that is way beyond your physical capacity. It sounds to me like you're well and truly fit and strong enough to do something like that if you're doing reformer Pilates four to five times a week. So it, to me, that doesn't sound like an un, unusual level of load on your body. Uh, and so it doesn't seem that likely to me that it's, an, it's a traumatic injury. Um, so I guess there are two possibilities. You know, one is that it's a traumatic, that, that's you know, some kind of injury. You've injured a disc or you've injured a pulled a muscle or something like that. Or the second one, which I think is way more likely, is that it's a pain flare. It's a pain episode. Um, and so 
Either way, the you know the treatment is fairly similar, <laughs> um, which is good news. So um, the right. So the prognosis for sciatica, which prognosis just means like what's likely to happen if left untreated. So basically. Uh, the vast majority of people get better within one to two years. Two years, absolute maximum. People who have, uh, a lot of people get better within six weeks. Um, people who have surgery tend to get better outcomes in the short term, like as in less than one year, but in the long term, no better outcomes. So in other words, surgery just like hastens the recovery process. It doesn't actually improve your end result. So, you know, unless your symptoms are completely unbearable, I would not consider surgery because there are obviously significant risks associated with spinal surgery. So if it's a pain flare, that would be basically your pain system is, uh, you know, is responding to a perception of threat to do with certain positions. You know, um, and maybe that is, you know, some combination of poor sleep, stress in your life, you know, um, low physical activity, although that doesn't sound like it's an issue for you, um, you know, and basically, you know, various other sort of psychosocial variables. Or if it's an injury, it might be an irritated disc. It might be uh, some kind of low-grade inflammation in your um, spine or nerve root or somewhere down through the course of that nerve. Uh, and either way, um, basically the, the recommendation will is to avoid movements that cause you know, un, intolerable pain and to you know, keep moving and keep as active as possible within pain tolerance. And uh, you don't need to do special exercises, you know, as in like moving in a particular way or flexing or extending or activating or anything like that. Um, so, you know, as recommended by a health provider, if stretching makes it worse, well, don't stretch. If stretching doesn't make it worse... If you want to stretch, stretch. But there's no particular benefit to stretching. Uh, and for you, Belinda, with uh, you know, if you've got exercise that's making it worse, I would back off. I would do less. So don't do none. Do less, or just do different exercises. You know, try doing different exercises instead of those ones that seem to aggravate it. See if you can find either a lower dose of the same exercise or just a different exercise so that it doesn't aggravate it. And when I say aggravate it, I mean like if you get a bit of discomfort or pain whilst you're moving, that's okay, that's normal. But if it stays flared up for like, you know, a day afterwards, I would find a different exercise or a lower dose, you know, less intensity or less reps. Um, and then just from there with patience and a long view thinking months of trajectory, build it back up, you know, gradually get back you know, to, in, to work back towards doing those exercises that were aggravating and those levels of reps and levels of intensity that were aggravating and just gradually build it back up. 
Um, and whether it's a central nervous system mediated, you know, pain flare, or whether it's a, you know, irritation or herniation of your disc or inflammation in your spinal canal or nerve impingement in the hip, like it, the, the prescription would be the same, which would be avoid aggravating exercises or movements, okay? But when I say aggravating, I just mean ones that flare it where it stays flared for a day, right? If, if, you, if it gives you a bit of pain when you do it and that settles within an hour or two or even half a day, that's fine. You can, you can do that. But you just need to reduce or change the activity to the point where you can tolerate it and it doesn't and it settles within a day after doing the activity. Uh, and then just you know ad- adopt a patient um, attitude and and move forwards uh, you know within pain tolerance. So you know keep doing that for a couple of weeks and then try doing a little bit more or a little bit something different that's a bit closer to the original exercise that aggravated it and then just move from there. So I would say nothing in particular is off limits. I wouldn't necessarily say don't stretch or don't, you know, move your knees past 90 degrees or anything. I would say if those things flare your pain, yes, avoid them or reduce them um, to the point where they don't flare your pain. Um, But if uh, there's no particular reason to do them either. So just do what you like doing, um, but reduce the dose. So if you like Pilates, which it sounds like you sure do, uh, maybe try beginner's classes or drop your springs right back when doing, you know, lower body work um, or, you know, go to prenatal class or something like that um, and see see if you can tolerate that. Um, I definitely am in favour of you keeping moving, you know, on a daily basis, uh, but just, you know, winding it back and slash or changing the particular activities or exercises or positions that you're in so you don't flare it. Uh, and the prognosis is excellent. You know, whether it's a disc bulge or whether it's a, you know, inflammation in your sciatic nerve or whatever, or whether it's a pain flare, the prognosis is excellent. You're very likely going to recover. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, patience and, uh, you know, keeping optimistic about it and, you know, looking after your general health, you know, sleep, stress, diet, hydration, exercise, all of those normal things. Um, and all of them will contribute to, uh, your improvement and recovery. So I hope that helps. That's all we have today. Thank you all for your questions. Thanks for listening. If you have a question, you can email it to me and we have a new email address. It's AMA for Ask Me Anything, AMA at breathe.edu.au. Or if you're a present student or past student, you can ping me on Slack or email me uh, direct and I would love to answer your questions. If I don't know the answer, I will look it up. So I hope you have a great week. Hope you're well. Hope your loved ones are well. And I'll see you soon. Ciao.